you know, for me it was very much like I remember there were a couple of friends that really didn't want to know me after I became Muslim and I remember feeling sad thinking, you know, if this were you, if the roles were reversed and you came to me with something else, I would want to stand by you. And so that was quite sad to me. But then it was also I kind of saw it as a good separating of the chaff from the grain, like maybe our friendships weren't what I thought they were and, and so be it. I think that's also when you know you really want to do something sincerely and um, with absolute conviction is when you realise um, things might go badly after this and I still want to do it. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Susan Carlin grew up in the Melbourne suburb of Forest Hill, where she practiced ballet, excelled in school and attended her local Uniting Church. In her late teenage years, she decided to explore different religions. At age 19, Susan switched Abrahamic religions from Christianity to Islam. As well as being Australia's best-known Muslim convert, Susan is a lecturer at Monash University's National Centre on Australian Studies, a commentator on gender, sociology and religion, and co-presenter of SBS's Salam Cafe. Her second book, published this year, is on Islam and feminism and carries the punchy title, Fighting Islam. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So what made you examine the religion of your upbringing? Mm. Most people don't do that. Um, Well, it was when I was 17, I just started to wonder why I believed what I did. I wanted do I believe this because I think it's true or if it's, is it just what I've been raised to believe? So I was very happy in my church. I had an incredibly positive um, church experience. It honestly couldn't have been better. The people in my church were like they, they are what, what every Christian would want for their children to experience in the church, you know, just an absolute dream. Um, but I just, I started to have questions about, well, what do I actually believe? So I decided to look into other religions. I had no interest in Islam whatsoever, but I kept sort of stumbling across it. And to my surprise, when I actually read uh, what Islam said about itself, as opposed to what I saw in, you know, sensationalist media and Hollywood and that sort of thing, uh, or or also, I suppose, what I saw certain Muslims saying in the name of Islam, um, when I went back to sort of the classic orthodox texts, I realised, to my surprise, this makes a lot of sense to me. But it took me a while to convert. I didn't convert till I was 19 because obviously it's, it's a big step. Um, and I was also really worried about how my family and friends were going to react. Mm. But I also think it's – I do think it's um, – and I see it now also when I look at, you know, students who are around 18 or 19. I think it's really the age as well. It's a very idealistic age. It's the age where you are very conscious of how the world should be but how it's not and um, making a difference. And I noticed it was around that age that a lot of my friends at university would get involved in student politics, you know, they'd join – the Socialist Alliance or the Young Liberals, um, they'd become vegan. It was a ve- It is a very idealistic age. So I guess other people join the Young Labor Party and I became Muslim. 
So it reminds me of that, uh, that lovely bit in The Life of Pi where uh, he decides that he will simultaneously study multiple religions, which all works out fine until suddenly uh, there's a moment in the book uh, where his uh, priest and rabbi and imam all come together and are, and are horrified uh, about the, that this child would study multiple religions. What else did you explore before you came, came to Islam? Did you look into Judaism, for example, yeah, Buddhism? Yeah, I, did, I didn't look as much into Buddhism as, as I I've certainly actually look more into Buddhism now that I'm Muslim. I think being friends with um, Michelle Laurie, who's a she's a famous comedian, but also a very practicing and sincere Buddhist, and she's a friend of mine. She's written some great books on Buddhism, um, and it's funny actually. When I did uh, a book launch event for her um, after reading one of her books called Buddhism for Breakups, and I said to her, "It is remarkable because." I'm not Buddhist and I'm not in a breakup, you know, I'm not breaking up in my relationship, but I got so much out of this book. And I guess, you know, there is obviously, I believe, inherent truth and wisdom in every religion. But anyway, I did look into, uh, I did look at other religions as well. Um, you know, I was obviously, I, I knew a lot about and loved Christianity. I was particularly impressed with Judaism. Uh, but I guess there was something about Islam, I guess, that just hooked me too much, as I said, to my surprise. What was it that you that, that you appreciated? Well, I think, again, to my surprise and probably to the surprise of other people listening, it actually appealed to my mind um, before it appealed to me spiritually. Like when I actually looked at um, the teachings, the philosophies, the laws, I realised all of this intellectually makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and then it was later that the sort of the spiritual attachment followed, I think, People generally just assume that I converted to get married. That's just the the given. And I think that says a lot because I think most people couldn't conceive that a free Western woman would ever choose Islam. There's just that assumption that, oh, well, maybe those women are Muslim because they've been raised and they don't know any better, poor things, but no woman would choose it. So people assume that I, I converted to marry Walid, which is um, not true at all. And, in fact, Walid loves telling this story that, after I became Muslim, um, you know, I had a, f a couple of friends say, you and Walid would be really good together. Um, you know, why don't you, you know, get, get together and see what you think? And Walid being the very um, chivalrous, upright man that he was, he got in touch with me uh, on the phone and said, you know, I'm, I'd really like to get to know you for more serious purposes. And I said, listen... I wouldn't marry you if you were the last man on earth. And that was the end of that. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't for him. I mean, obviously we did get together later, but um, it was very much something that I wanted to do for myself. What would you recommend to somebody who's interested in Islam? I mean, I, I haven't read the Quran cover to cover, but uh, it's it's the bits that I have read struck me as hard going. Uh, do you explore the hadiths, or is there some introductory text that would be interesting for yeah. someone who's curious about Islam? Well, first of all, I would be say be really careful about the English translations of the Quran you pick up. There are some good ones, and there are some horrendous ones that I would never recommend. So, I suppose, like with any religious text, you know, you can get accessible. Uh, interpretations and some just you know god awful ones um what I actually would recommend would be there's a couple of really good books I recommend one is a really great book written by a woman called Carla Powell she's not Muslim and she wrote a book called if the oceans were ink and it's all about her correspondence with an imam and just her asking questions and it's beautifully laid out it's really you know written in such a beautiful way she raises all the standard concerns and questions that the average questioning non-muslim might have 
and you read the imam's answers. And I, it's a lovely book to read. And I like to recommend it because I think often if I recommend other books, people, especially if they're by Muslim authors, people think, oh, well, there's an agenda there, you know, as if somehow Muslims are subjective but non-Muslims are objective. But leaving that aside, um, I really – this is just a lovely book. It's very accessible. You know, often I think the, the questions or issues that people have about Islam or Muslims today, they're pretty heavy going. And they can so therefore – um, and they often require nuanced, detailed answers, which can be impenetrable to the the average punter. This is a pretty accessible book, so it's a it's a good one that I recommend. If the oceans were ink, is a good place to start. And when I go along to uh, local uh, services at the local local mosque or that uh, the local Muslim community puts on, I do. I particularly love the camaraderie between the men there and the way in which if I take along one of my sons is, is immediately uh, engaged. At the same time, the, uh, the process of obser religious observance in which the sexes are separated uh, makes me a little uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, how, do you, how do you find that? Do you, do you appreciate uh, worship well, where you're you're simply surra surrounded by women in that in that context, does I mean, that bring a particular joy? There is a niceness to it. I think it's also important to know, though, that traditionally in the first and earlier mosque, there was no barrier between men and women. The women weren't in a separate room; they weren't behind a curtain. This is a very modern innovation, actually. Um, men and women would pray in their own sections because, you know, when we pray, it's we're very physically squashed in together and in traditional Muslim communities there is a, a sort of a, I guess a modesty between men and women but for example if you go to the biggest one of the biggest mosques in Indonesia called the Istiqlal Mosque you have just have men on one side and women on another and there's a little you know there's the like the corridor or the walkway in the middle the path in the middle but there's no physical barrier men and women are in the same space when you go and hajj the pilgrimage we don't even have separate sections as everyone's just packed in together and it's interesting, when I did um, my PhD, uh, which is then turned into the book that you mentioned at the, uh, in the introduction, so I was interviewing women, Muslim women, who are passionate about their faith but also passionate about finding sexism. And one of the women I interviewed, her thing was really women's access to the mosque and she was very fired up about it. She was this amazing African-American woman. And um, she felt really passionately and strongly about the way women just didn't have good access to the mosque. They couldn't see, they couldn't hear, they weren't treated as equal citizens and she felt religiously really affronted by this because, as I said, this wasn't how it was meant to be. This wasn't the traditional setup. This is a new modern, you know, modern in quote-unquote twist. Um, and so she decided that her and her friends were just going to go one day to the mosque and pray in the men's section as they had the right to do. They, you know, said I have the religious right. Um, to do this so they went to the mosque you know they were dressed very conservatively they even went and prayed behind the men so it's not even like they were you know joining in the men's lines or anything and the men of the mosque called the police on them and had them arrested and she's not allowed to go back to that mosque anymore and what was interesting was she was pretty um jovial about this when she like she was laughing when she told me even though it's a you know pretty horrendous thing but I think it's important also for people to know that um women are pushing back against this as well and you know uh because I think particularly for women who, who are Muslim and feel strongly about their faith, they see that as a religious affront, like they have a religious duty to try to change mm, this because mm. not only is it, is it um, making women feel excluded but then also so often when women go to the mosque they take their children with them. So then the kids feel excluded and then the mosque becomes a boys' club. That's not what the house of God is supposed to be. So, um, you know, there is agitation on that front. So as a... 
Muslim feminist, do you feel as though you've got a lot of work still, still to do? Well, I think just as a feminist, there's a lot of work to do, isn't there, everywhere. I mean, obviously I focus, uh, I have an, an academic and I suppose personal interest in what's happening in the Muslim community. And certainly, uh, you know, absolutely there's work to be done. I mean, my whole book and PhD was a, was a, uh, a testament to that fact. But, you know, it's also the reality is that sadly sexism exists when within every community and society around the world because it's a human condition. And so it is, you know, as a sociologist, it is no surprise to me that sexism exists within our religious institutions in the same way that it exists within our political institutions or our legal institutions because it's made up of humans. And unfortunately, humans have a tendency to be sexist. And so, you know, my goal is to, you know, in, in, in the most effective and all-embracing way possible to try to break that and whether that's through... Um, people opening the door or us having to break it down, I think that's what we've got to do. And we've got to all be in this together. This isn't a women's problem. This is an everyone problem. So thinking about the, the moment at which you, uh, you announced your conversion, mm. uh, how did your parents take it? It was hard. Jeez, it was hard. It was so hard. Um, I still feel sad when I look back on that actually just because I knew how upset they would be. Um, and I don't think it was particularly that they were sad that I was leaving Christianity per se. I think they were really worried about me becoming Muslim, you know, at that time. This was before September 11. So really the only thing anyone knew about Islam was that film, Not Without My Daughter. I don't know if you ever saw it. Awful, sad film based on a true story. Horrendous. And that was really all anyone knew about Islam. So um, I think my mum probably saw it coming because she could see what I was reading and what I was interested in. But, you know, she was... You know, she wasn't happy. I mean, she gave me a hug and everything, but, you know, she was crying and and it was a difficult journey for both of us, I think. Um, and it was, you know, I think she had to be convinced that Islam wasn't what she thought it was. But I also needed to not be the 19-year-old zealot that I was. You know, at that age, it's, we can be very mm. <laughs> strident in our beliefs, whether, like I said, it's about being vegan or socialist or whatever it is. We're very much, this is the way it has to be and either accommodate me or get stuffed. And I needed to get out of that way as well. And now, you know, many years on, about 20 years on, um, you know, she, everything is wonderful there. How much of the reaction was your decision to begin wearing a hijab yeah. straight away? That was, I think, a huge part of it. I think if I decided to become Muslim but never put on the headscarf, I think it would have been a very different, uh, a very different beast um, but I pretty much put the headscarf on straight away. And in some ways I'm probably glad that I did in the context of family reaction just because I got everything out of the way all at once. Like I think if I'd become Muslim and then five years later I said I'm putting on the hijab, it just would have reopened everything. Yes. So we kind of got all those horrendously difficult conversations out of the way up front. I think, you know, my mum, I think like a lot of women and certainly even Muslim women, majority of Muslim women certainly in Australia don't cover their hair. And some because, you know, maybe they're frightened about reaction but some don't want to or don't think they have to or come from countries where it was enforced and they feel really angry and resistant to that and I totally get that so I think my mum is one of those women who um you know she was a feminist in the 60s and grew up with that kind of um approach to feminism and women's rights and you know she doesn't love the hijab but she loves me I guess and can accept that uh i make different choices about how I want to present myself and it's the same issues that I now face with my 14-year-old daughter like sometimes she might wear something or 
you know, dress a certain way or do a hair a certain way and I'll think, oh, but then I think it's your body, dude, do what you want. And that's kind of what you meant to do, I suppose, when you're a teenager as well is wear things that make our parents wonder what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you um, help your parents through that, uh, that transition? Uh, and, and your friends too. Uh, yeah. How did you engender acceptance and a recognition that you, you were still Susan? Well, I just tried to still be me, you know, tried to still crack the same dumb jokes and be the same person. But it was, you know, and in many ways I was still and am still that same person. But in other ways, you know, obviously, you know, taking on a, a new religion, th- things come with that as well. Um, and also I was 19 and so we're so, you know, no offence to any 19-year-olds out there, but we can be really full of ourselves and also quite um, lacking in wisdom and grace in dealing with other people. And so, you know... Perhaps I wasn't as, you know, I like to think I was and I really tried to be understanding and accommodating. But, you know, I'm sure I could have done a better job as well. <laughs> Sorry, anyone out there who knew me when I was 19. <laughs> your, um, your friend Maithri has spoken about how uh, your conversion provided him comfort when a few years later he came out as a gay man. Yeah. Um, what lessons do you think there are from your journey for brothers who are making a, a big transition, mm. quitting a job, ending a relationship, yeah. coming out? I think being completely honest with yourself, which is a difficult thing to do, especially if you're worried about how other people react, and just realising I think it got to the stage for me and probably it was similar with my three where we realised I cannot live this way anymore to keep other people happy. This is who I am. This is what I believe. And obviously I don't want to hurt other people and I hope that I don't. But if I am wanting to be a person of integrity and live a life of authenticity, then then I need to own that. And some people might not like it and some relationships might fall by the wayside. And that is sad. Obviously I don't want that, but... Um, you know, for me it was very much like I remember there were a couple of friends that really didn't want to know me after I became Muslim and I remember feeling sad thinking, you know, if this were you, if the roles were reversed and you came to me with something else, I would want to stand by you. And so that was quite sad to me. But then it was also I kind of saw it as a good separating of the chaff from the grain, like maybe our friendships weren't what I thought they were and, and so be it, which is, you know, it can be a, it can be a difficult one but... I think that's also when you know you really want to do something sincerely and um, uh, with absolute conviction is when you realise um, things might go badly after this and I still want to do it. Mm. I'm curious about the role that faith plays in a good life for you. Mm. Uh, you, uh, I assume you pray five, five times a day. Mm-hmm. What, what do you pray about? Mm. Well, there's actually two types of prayer in Islam. So there's the ritualistic prayers we do five times a day which have set movements um we say set things set arabic terms um and it's you know quite prescriptive and then we also have another type of prayer which is more similar to the christian type type of prayer it's called dua and it just basically is the kind of prayer you say in any language um whatever you want wherever you want driving a car you know whatever sitting outside whatever it is pushing the shopping trolley at the supermarket. And that's, you know, often those is those prayers um, where you ask God for things or ask for help or protection or guidance or thank you or whatever it is. So there are those two types of prayers that we do. Um, and there is a, a loveliness and a serenity to both types um, that 
is really pleasant. And like with the five times a day prayer, you know, people think, oh my gosh, that's so much. But it's actually a really nice realignment. It's kind of like checking your moral compass five times a day and saying, where am I going? Am I still the person I want to be? Do I need to realign myself? Um, Reminding us of what's important. And certainly there can be times in a horrendously busy day where my those prayers may not be as conscious as I would like and it is easy to fall into that almost robotic, okay, I've just got to do this. And that is a time when we have to where I have to force myself to come back to the present moment and be in this moment and think about what I need. It's a real moment of, I guess, remembering my humanity and my um, fragility and reliance on a higher power. I uh, spent three years of my childhood growing up in Indonesia and I, I still mm. love the, uh, the call, to, call uh, to prayer yes. when I'm in a, in a Muslim country, just the way it, uh, it echoes across. If you're uh, getting ready for a morning run, there's nothing yeah. like uh, being reminded that you should get out of bed there. Yeah. Uh, and one of the other things I, I particularly appreciate, I remember travelling through Morocco, uh, the, um, the norm of when you walk into a public place as a, as, as a male, you walk in the door, you say, Assalamu alaikum. Uh, and, and women should uh, do that too. Okay, that's just interesting. So, you know, yeah, so I yeah. didn't. Yeah, I didn't see many yeah. many women doing it. But it's that mm. it's a general notion that that I I don't just slink into a cafe. I greet the people in the yeah. cafe as I and greet them with peace. I mean, that's what yes. assalamu alaikum means. Peace be upon you. So it's about they're meant to be this constant reminder of peace. And I feel like I know just for myself in the frantic busyness of life, peace is elusive. So it's nice to sort of permanently have that you know, ingrained reminder. The other hugely challenging part of Islam is, uh, is the fasting, uh, spending a month yes. not only uh, not eating but also not drinking, which when we were in Aceh I was particularly struck by people who would work in the fields mm. and unable to, uh, to drink during the day. Uh, what do you feel the fasting does for you? Yeah, it is a massive spiritual discipline, undoubtedly. Um, and I know, you know, there are obviously traditions of fasting in, in really, I think, all the world, major world religions. So I guess it's there, it's that um, sign that, you know, many of the great spiritual masters saw religious or spiritual benefit and growth in this. In, um, you know, Jesus when he was in the desert. I know my Jewish friends have their 25-hour fast. Um, and I know other traditions obviously have it as well. It is hard. There is no denying that it is physically difficult. But for me, it's about when I fast, when I withhold food from my body, food and drink from my body, nourishment from my body, and focus more on my soul, I realise how I've actually been starving my soul for the other 11 months of the year and feeding my body. So Ramadan is kind of that flip. And I see how my soul's been starved. Um, So it is a really important reminder in that way. And also, I think the spiritual discipline act of it is really important you know we live in a instant gratification society where um i have a headache i take a pill i'm thirsty i just get a drink straight away there is no delayed gratification um and and delayed gratification is a really important you know mature skill to have um and so ramadan is actually a really good way that forces me probably in a way that i would never would in any other circumstance in my life sit with discomfort and realise it is okay, I can sit with this and what does this mean? There is a lot of growth in it. Ramadan is like a mirror. It puts a mirror up to us and, you know, I realise how much I use food and drink and particularly caffeine as kind of a crutch 
We all know that term of being hangry when you're hungry and you're angry and you become a bit feral when you're angry or you haven't had your coffee or whatever. And when I'm like that in Ramadan, I realise when all my crutches are stripped away, this is my real self and that's kind of unpleasant. You know, I like to think of myself as a, a nice, you know, relatable, warm person. But in Ramadan, especially in the beginning when you're sort of adjusting or acclimatising, I realise that actually I'm a pretty cranky person and um, that's something that's, that I need to work on. That's a, a very stoic sort of res- response there, the, the notion of uh, inflicting uh, suffering on yourself mm. to, to find in um, the, the crystalline essence well, I guess uh, it, who work out who you are. Yeah, and I guess it's also like I also see it as, you know, you're a marathon runner. You know, um, it's like you know how some athletes will sometimes do high-altitude training to build up the oxygen uh, in their blood or boxers will sometimes box with weights in their gloves? So when you go back down to normal uh, sea level or when you take the weights out of your gloves, you're flying. It's, like, so easy. Because in Ramadan, obviously for Muslims, you know, we're never meant to lie or backstab or swear or anything like that. But doing those things in Ramadan is even more serious. Like we are meant to be so conscious of ourselves. And so there's this awareness that if I can fast and not be grumpy and not yell at people and not backbite about my colleagues and, you know, not swear and lie, if I can do it when I'm fasting and I feel it's difficult, how much easier should it be the other 11 months of the year? I know I can do it. I don't have any excuse now. So it's, it's kind of, it is this spiritual training. It's a spiritual work. Ramadan is altitude training. I yeah. like it. <laughs> uh, so uh, then there's how much of the Western world views Islam. Uh, did you realise when you converted to Islam you'd be taking on personal responsibility for the wrongdoing <laughs> of each one of the world's 1.5 billion Muslims? Yes, it, it's quite, uh, yeah, I'm very busy with my correspondence answering for, you know, that Muslim lady that put her bins out on the wrong night and <laughs> <coughs> that Muslim that cut you off in traffic. I am sorry about that as well. But in all serious, no, it, I mean, I didn't certainly did and, you know, I became Muslim before September 11 and obviously a lot changed then. And before then there was certainly animosity towards Islam and, you know, an ignorance, but nothing like it is now. Like how it is now is, you know, I can say honestly the worst it's ever been. It is, it is the most difficult political climate um, I've, I've experienced. And it's not just me saying that, having spoken to other Muslims who are active and engaged in community service or media, there is a weariness and a a sadness and a sense of um despondency about how things are going which is a challenge how do you how do you deal with that Mm. both in terms of creating a positive public conversation Mm. about the religion that you love but also in terms of dealing with the um uh the personal attacks Mm. without becoming hardened for me it comes down to the idea that because there are certainly times when I'm like this is too hard and also what is difficult is the feeling now that it actually doesn't matter what I say or do it doesn't change anything and that's a really difficult realization to come to that it doesn't matter how many facts people seem to be given like no matter how many times ABC fact check shows people no halal doesn't fund jihad we can tell you that here is all the evidence it doesn't matter those facts are irrelevant um and I, I guess I thought as an academic, 
oh, once people know the truth, like it will, that will change their minds. Um, and it is, it is a sad thing when you realise that, well, the truth actually doesn't matter in this conversation. That's a hard thing to come to terms with. And so there are times when I just think this is too hard, nothing will change, I'm just going to stay in my a cave and, and never go anywhere. But then I realise that all of us, we have two choices. We can choose despair or we can choose hope. That is literally what it comes down to for any of us. And I don't want to live a life of despair. So then I have to choose a life of hope and everything that goes with that. And, you know, part of um, publishing my PhD as a book, I was actually really reluctant to. I just, a lot of me just wanted it to stay on the shelves, the dusty shelves in the library and never be read by anyone other than my examiners. But then I thought, I don't have the right to get angry or frustrated about the public conversation about Muslim women, either in the Muslim community or outside the Muslim community, and do nothing about it. You know, I don't have that right, especially when I'm sitting on, you know, this goldmine of, of uh, stories and information and, and, and evidence and all these things from these women that I interviewed. Um, I feel this is an important contribution. I don't know if it will necessarily change anyone's minds, but I think it can at least bring some nuance to our conversation about Muslim women and sexism. So, you know, it is that thing about, well, either do something or don't complain. So I do something. And I don't know if anything will change. I don't actually know. Maybe I will die whenever, you know, 60, 80, tomorrow, none of us know. But if nothing else, then at least I can hope that I can die and say, I tried. I tried to do something. And in terms of the uh, criticism directed towards you, uh, you have a sort of unusual strategy, I understand, for dealing <laughs> with uh, Twitter abuse. Yes. Uh, is it right that you uh, you give a dollar to UNICEF I for every, uh, every every instance of personal abuse? <laughs> I do. That is correct. How much has uh, UNICEF received so $5, far? We're uh, $5,200 and I actually need to put in a bit more. Um, I sort of do it in chunks but, yeah, there hasn't been a bit more lately. Um, and the reason that started was because, you know, I found that I just – I get a lot of abuse on Twitter because I'm a Muslim woman. It is – I think – I actually can't think of an instance of abuse that wasn't about specifically that. Um, and I realised that it didn't actually matter what I did, how I interacted or didn't interact with these people, if I was, if I sort of patiently tried to engage and, you know, have a polite dialogue, if I was sarcastic or smarmy, if I was angry and argumentative, um, if I blocked them or muted them ignored them, none of it made a difference. None of it changed anything. It just this tidal wave of, you know, sludge kept coming my way. And I thought, well, they are putting all this negativity out into the world and this darkness. So how instead of I can't stop them and I can't control them and I don't even want my behaviour to be dictated by theirs. I want my behaviour to be dictated on the moral values that I think are important. So I thought, well, how can I just put out a, some light and goodness into the world just to counteract their hate? So I thought, what if I every hate tweet I get, I just donate a dollar to UNICEF? Um, and so I just started doing that. It was never as a campaign or to try to start a movement or anything like that. It was just it was me trying to live authentically what I believed. And so I started doing that. And what was the loveliest thing about it was that people who found out I was doing it wanted to help me so strangers like I had this woman I've never met send me an email and say I heard about what you're doing I will sponsor the next thousand hate tweets on your behalf and send a thousand dollars to UNICEF 
Um, I had two people do that actually. Um, you know, and other people get in touch. I've donated $5 or $10 and that was lovely and it was, I guess, um, a moment of, you know, people I think, you know, the sad thing is I think we hear a lot about in, in conversations today about the state of the world. We feel sad about a lack of moral leadership and I certainly wouldn't consider myself to be a moral leader in any way but I think it's human nature that when we see people doing good in a way that we hadn't thought of, we want to be a part of that and so I guess that's why the people thought, well, I, I, that's what I want to do too. I want to participate in that too. It's a beautiful response in some sense to wrap your own silver lining around each of these yeah. clouds. Uh, presumably you haven't yet got any evidence that UNICEF staff are uh, getting on as Twitter trolls and deliberately <laughs> attacking you to raise donations for their organisation. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like sometimes people would send me tweets going, I don't, I'm, I really like you but I'm going to say something mean so you have to donate a dollar to UNICEF. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you could just donate a dollar to UNICEF yourself. You don't need to come and give me a fake insult for this. That's not how this has to work but so be it. You, yours is a harder and a fuller life than if you'd followed a, a safer course. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any regrets about the, the path that you've followed? It would definitely, my life would definitely be easier if I weren't Muslim. I, you know, I've often thought about that. But I guess that is the, the sad and beautiful reality is the problem is I actually believe this. That's the thing. And so if I sincerely believe this, what choice do I have? You know, it is it is what it is it, that I want to be Muslim. I sincerely believe this. And so then this is the life, I guess. <laughs> so, Susan, just to, to wrap up. Uh, Let me cough. Sorry, so you can say that again. <coughs> Sorry, carry on. Uh, just to uh, conclude, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Hmm. I would tell her... Don't worry so much about what other people think, either the negative or the positive. So don't worry about the people that seem to hate you and don't worry about the people that seem to love you. And I'm not saying just, you know, go and be your own weird Sherpa in the hill somewhere. Um, and also I think it's dangerous if we like, I don't care what anybody thinks and then you can just go on being a jerk and not listening when other people are trying to tell you actually you're a jerk. But what I would say is take, find some people whose opinions you really trust have them as your guides that can tell you one way or another um, if you are on the right path, if you're doing the right thing or conducting yourself in a good way and then tune out the rest of the noise because I look back at my teenage self and I see how easily I wavered under the approval or disapproval of my peers or even strangers and I am frustrated with my younger self and I realise now, um, you know, I wonder how much more I could have done or even just how much... Um, more secure or happier I could have been if I had just thought what you think is irrelevant and I know who I am and what is important and I'm going to keep going in this direction. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, well, this is sort of a, a sad one to uh, reflect on and it kind of, you know, um, goes back to what we were saying earlier. I used to genuinely believe that if we had facts that that would change things. And it's been a sad realisation that the truth doesn't matter. Maybe as an academic I thought, of course, we just need evidence. But, you know, I was talking to um, uh, Rebecca Huntley, who's a social researcher recently. We're at a writers' festival together 
And, you know, in her social research, she does a lot of, you know, interviews and focus groups with people about lots of issues to do with Australia, values, multiculturalism, whatever. And one of the questions she will often ask people is, um, what percentage of Australia do you think is Muslim? And she said the most common answer is 35%, which um, we are not one third of the country, but it's interesting that that's what people think. The actual fact is we're 2.6%. If we, you know, agree with the latest census, then why wouldn't we agree with those details? Um, and But what was interesting is when they say, I think it's 35% and, and then she would say, oh, well, okay, it's at, did you know it's actually 2.6%? Here is the evidence, you know, and she'd show them the data. And they would look at it and go, no, I still think it's 35%. And that is a terrifying reality because I don't know how you, how do we reason our way out of that? How, what is our meeting point? What is the meaning point of the minds when we cannot even agree on like hard facts like statistics? Um, that that say that is one that I'm grappling with a lot at the moment, and I don't really know my way through that. Don't you take sucker from looking at the long view? I mean, most of us used to believe that the sun rotated around the earth. Most of us used to believe that smoking wouldn't kill you. Uh, most of us used to believe that humans weren't causing climate change. Most of us used to believe that uh, left-handers were, uh, were were evil. Yeah. Uh, isn't the the march of of ideas and progress uh, forward over the long term, mm. even if it can be backwards over the short term? I, I yeah, I have to hope. I have to hope that's the case. And you know, like I was saying, it's you know, it is about having hope. Um, you know, I can't see 100 years into the future. I sincerely hope that is the case. And I do get some comfort when I look at, say, the animosity that used to exist towards Catholics in this country. You know, I, I think I remember actually Bill Shorten once saying that his mum or his grandma couldn't get a job once because she was Catholic. And um, so hearing that, I don't mean this, obviously, I don't mean this awfully towards Catholics, but it is nice to hear simply because... You know, now, like, people would hear that and just think, what the heck? Why would we not give someone a job because they were Catholic? Why would we think that way? So I do have to hope that that, that will change. That being said, when you are right in the middle of that storm and, you know, there are protests, like, literally just streets from my house from Reclaim Australia saying they don't want people like us in this country and I go past with my kids and they're like, what does that mean? When you are in the middle of it, it is difficult to sort of, get air in, yes. when you're in there um so it's that's a it's a challenge when are you most happy happiness for me is there there's this great quote can't remember who said it um where it said if you try to chase happiness it will always elude you but if you just do your thing you'll find that happiness comes and alights on your shoulder like a butterfly and I feel like it's like that for me. The other day I took my son and his friend to the local park to play soccer. And as I was taking them, I'm like, oh, God, I don't have time for this. So many things I need to do. And then just as I was sitting there in the sun, and it was cold but it was sunny and I could hear the birds and I was watching the ants on the trees and I thought, I don't remember the last time I sat quietly by myself in nature and this is so lovely. Um, and it was just one of those moments of happiness sneaking up on me and that's generally how it seems to be you know we can plan for happiness oh when I go on this holiday it's going to be amazing or this concert it's going to be so great but I actually think it's happiness comes and finds us often in unremarkable situations um it just seeks us out 
and I guess our job is just to pay attention. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I go to the gym and that is a really important one for me mentally. I'm much less of a deeply unpleasant person when I go to the gym. It's just like a stress release valve for me and it's actually a really good bellwether indication for me I think that when I've if I look back and realise, gee, I haven't been to the gym, because I try to go, you know, four or five times a week, and if I suddenly look back and go, I haven't been to the gym for like two weeks, I know everything's out of control. My life's out of control. Like now, for example, I haven't been to the gym for two weeks. My life is ridiculous. It's a hurricane. And I know that my lack of gym attendance is showing me there's a problem. You need to get your life in order. Get, you know, this is not a healthy way to be. What do you do at the gym? Mindless cardio. So I run on the treadmill. I love, you know, running so fast that your lungs feel like they're on fire. Like I love that feeling. I love it. Um, Or I get on the exercise bike and just, you know, do 20Ks or whatever. Um, The elliptical is good. I often get injuries when I run. I obviously have horrendous running technique. I should actually get tips from you. But I obviously have terrible running technique, injure my knees, my back, everything. I don't know what I'm doing. So the elliptical is a good alternative. Um, But it's just I go – I often go and I feel myself so tightly wound up when I get to the gym, like often my chest hurts (laughs) because I'm so stressed about everything. And then I just have a big session at the gym and then it's just like, ah, oh, I'm okay now. Right, okay, everything's better. So it's, it's a very much a, a mental thing first and then a physical thing later. It's like a pressure relief. Hmm. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I drink a lot of coffee. You know, I'm Muslim. We don't drink. We don't smoke. I don't know nearly enough strange men. But I drink a lot of coffee, like 10 cups a day. And I bloody love it. So that's, <laughs> that's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> uh, all espressos? No, I have milk in them. Okay. I'm a lady. No, yeah, I do. I have, I have yeah, just uh, no sugar but milky coffee. And finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think there, there is this one profound uh, moment in the book and also the, the musical. Um, I don't know if you've ever read or are you a musical fan? Somewhat. I love I love Hamilton. Hamilton is going oh, off in our house at the moment. I haven't, did you did you see it in America? No, no, no. I oh, just got the, the soundtrack. We, we just, the soundtrack basically plays nonstop when my kids are in the car. I have to get that. And nonstop is of course one of their favorite songs. <laughs> well, I love the musical Les Mis and the book as well. And there is this amazing scene in the book where and the, the play musical where. The main character, he's a, a criminal, had a terrible life of crime. Anyway, one night he, one night he finds himself in a priest's home um, and the priest said, that's fine, come and stay. You know, he saw him in the garden or something. He said, come and stay tonight, that's fine. And during the night the criminal um, decides to steal some silverware from the priest and sneak out before anyone wakes up. And so after he's snuck out, he's arrested by two police officers who bring him back to the priest and say to the priest, we found this man, he looks like he's stolen your things, what would you like to say to him? And in that moment the priest says to him, you forgot those candlesticks I gave you as well. So in that moment he not only forgave him and protected him but gave him more. So to the astonishment of the criminal, the priest says, oh, here, don't forget these candlesticks. I, you know, they, they were so much more. You forgot them. Please take them and any time you want to come back, come back. 
And the other people of the priest's house are looking at him like, what on earth are you doing? And the criminal can't believe it. But it was that moment of audacious grace that changed that man's life. And in that moment, the priest didn't know that. For all he knew, he could be radically graceful and this guy could live a terrible life, could come back and kill him for all he knows. But that's what he chose to do in that moment. And it had such profound impact on me that I've never forgotten it. And I certainly very rarely live up to that standard, but it is the standard to which I aspire of audacious grace. Did this moment come before your conversion? Do you think after? After. Yeah, after. I don't even think I'd seen Les Mis or read it until after. But it was just, yeah, this amazing priest. Susan Cullen, thanks so much for being a guest. I forgot I have a present for you. Oh. Actually, you're a very healthy guy. You probably don't want this. Anyway, uh, listeners. I'm always open to, open to gifts. <laughs> a bit of backstory because this is the strangest gift, actually, now that I think about it. I probably should be giving it to you. So the subject I teach is Introduction to Contemporary Australia. And I, it's got about 200 students in it, and most of them are from overseas. They're exchange students who are studying in Australia for a semester. Often they're from Europe, the UK, America. So every week in my tutorial I like to bring them in a traditional Australian lolly because, first of all, I remember when I was a student, free food is as good as it gets. I ate a lot of plates of 50-cent dal when I was a student. But also it's a nice way of experiencing Australia. So one week I bring in Tim Tams, another week I bring in, I don't know, fantails. This week was the crack cocaine of Australian lollies, the ones I'm sure your kids, if you're allowed sugar in your house, um, would have in all their lolly bags, which is the Whiz Fizz. I just finished my class. We had three Whiz Fizz left over and I said, I know who I'm going to give those to. Wow. So I'm giving three Whiz three Fizz. Three bags of Whiz Fizz. Can you just <laughs> r- rattle them just in front of the microphone? Who doesn't and love Whiz Fizz? Sebastian, Theodore and Zachary uh, will be extraordinarily <laughs> grateful for their sugar hit of ship. <laughs> Susan, thanks so much for being on The Good Life Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.